0: An A&E original podcast.
1: What does it go? Meet me at me, the altar in your white dress. Get it. get it. I don't have anything else. There's nothing else to get, Ugh. girl. <laughs> um, I don't know the you know, words. That wasn't, it.
0: that wasn't it, Amira.
1: That song gives me, like, I want to fight him. Because how dare you lead my girl on for nine years and just be like, okay, girl. Let's go. so also, also, we not getting no
0: younger, so we might as well
1: exactly. do it. Did you Girl. call me old? What? Did you call Let's me old? Let's try that again. <laughs> hey, y'all. Welcome to The Table is Ours, the podcast where we chat with our Black faves about all things Black identity, and that's Black excellence, Black struggle, and Black love. Today with me is my favorite co-host, Kirby Dixon. You know, my favorite thing about Kirby is that she's so detail-oriented, and a lot of times, like, I am chaos, and she is always light.
0: Aw, and y'all know who that is. That is my girl, Amira Lawali. What I love about Amira is she is the splash of Saint-Germain to my champagne, meaning she takes everything that's good and makes it even better. Aw, and you know every week we have to check in and i have to ask girl
1: how are you i'm i'm good cuz girl we were in the press <laughs> yes we were hot off the presses <laughs> press 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 uh, no, 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 no. hey um but i'm good i'm not going to lie to you like it's a little it's kind of it, i was shook like it's a little weird to see your name yeah i mean how trippy to be
0: in Publications that we've read growing up, Essence and yeah. Madame Noir and Buzzfeed. I know. It was it was a Wild. shock. Yeah. I think it's also so weird to be opening ourselves up in this way. Yeah. I mean it's it's weird being on this side. I don't know yeah. how I feel about
1: it. Yeah, I think it's I think we're very comfortable when we're talking and we forget that we're recording sometimes. And I feel like we say very I wouldn't say vulnerable at things that i i I wouldn't tell people that I didn't know. And that's still a shock for me that other people know my stories that I think are very intimate. But I think it's nice that other people relate to them,
0: yeah, that's yeah. what people tend to latch onto to are those moments where it's like, dang, I'm not alone. Like I have someone that I'm like is learning is actually going through the same things that we are. So I love yeah. that. That ability to connect is really special, particularly during a time when, we, can't we don't have the opportunity all. to connect to anyone. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so it's really nice. Yeah. Speaking of connectivity issues, it seemed like the entire world did not want us to connect with our newfound young fly black auntie. Girl, our Wi-Fi was trash. <laughs> sure was. But we got through. We prevailed. Uh, we are speaking to the incredible Elaine Welteroth. She was the youngest editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue she is an esteemed journalist, my favorite fashionista, and she is a New York Times best-selling author. And now she is the
1: newest co-host of The Talk on CBS. She was such a great guest. She's our new digital mentor. We talk imposter syndrome. We talk breaking into rooms. And we even talk about the power of saying no. And of course, we had to ask her
0: about her epic Brooklyn stoop wedding to the love of her life, Jonathan. If you haven't seen the photos, you must check them out. Shout out to Black Love. Elaine Welteroth,
1: let's get it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does.
0: They charge you a lot,
1: Oh, Hello. my gosh! <laughs> we are so excited for
0: this. Interview. so excited.
1: <laughs> like it, really? yes, yes. team up. like I could <laughs> I'm gonna rant ramp before you get to the first question. but I think you have been such an icon for the both of us as like people on like the other side of the industry. So when this was an option, we like lit up.
2: <laughs> oh, that yes, makes
1: me like up. we're family
2: now. We've been on the phone trying to figure out how to do this thing for like an hour now. so no, yes. So hey sis.
1: <laughs> I, I do want to start though. We we kind of start every single episode with the same question because honestly, this last year's been so crazy. Everyone's going through so much. So our first question for you is how are you? How are you really?
2: I appreciate that question. Thank you. And I am I honestly I am very well today. I am. And I I want to know how how are you two really right now?
1: At this moment, I'm good because I'm here now. Um, yes. It's a little chaotic. I think this year's been a little wild for all of us and we're all adapting yeah. to new things, but I'm, in this moment, I'm pretty good. I like where I'm at right now. So Good.
0: Yeah. And I totally, totally echo the same sentiment. If you asked us last week, uh, I think I would have said overwhelmed, yeah, <laughs> um, drained, exhausted, um, yeah. but being here with you now and literally Amir and I both feed off of energy and the energy that you're giving me. I'm just, I'm great right now. Uh, I
2: I feel the same way about you guys. It's it's seriously. And I think it just speaks to the power of community and, you know, not to sound corny or cliche, but really like being in the midst of people who bring light. And, and it's just like, we need that so much right now. And we're all just trying to keep our head above water. Um, And so when someone throws you good energy, it's like, they're throwing you a life raft. You're like, thank you. Yes. Sometimes it could just feel like you're in the hunger games when you're just at the grocery store. So when someone just acknowledges you or, Mm -hmm. you know, says, how are you? It just, it goes a long way right now. But yes, um, I feel really, really grateful. And I feel like this year has pulled into focus exactly how, how much we have to be grateful for, even if it is just waking up with breath in your lungs, you know what I mean? And, um, Oh, and, and so I just think it's, you know, complaining is just, it's just, I, I try to stop myself. It's just, it's just a waste of time because we, we are here. We mm-hmm. are here together. We have yeah. breath in our bodies. Um, we both, we all have cool jobs. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, we get to connect with each other on the internet that a lot of people don't have access to. I mean, I'm just, I've just become critically aware of my privileges and that kind of keeps me
0: keeps me uh, uh, when
2: I feel myself kind of spiraling down.
0: Yeah, definitely feel blessed. And speaking of that, we're going to get started, but Amir and I just want to say, and we know it's been a few months, but congratulations to you Uh. and Jonathan on being married (laughs) and for quite possibly throwing the most beautiful epic wedding of 2020. Um, I'm trying to contain myself. When Jonathan was on screen, I'm like, I know him! I know him! <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, it was such a light at a time that felt so dark for so many people. So I'm holding on to that still. So thank you. <laughs> you guys are
2: making my heart
1: explode right now. This is like I'm going to need a minute off camera to put back myself right now. This is so sweet. Thank you guys. No, it was great. And I think we were actually both still in New York when you posted the photos and it was like the most beautiful New York wedding. <laughs> and I was like stuck in my room and I was like, oh, "Okay, it's great moment. I'm happy." Yes. <laughs>
0: Yes. And literally a, the epitome of being so nimble and so creative and taking what life throws your way and making it a positive. And literally your photos are just breathtaking. So uh, thanks for giving us. We, I felt like I was a part of that wedding. I, I lived in a brownstone in New York too. I'm like, oh my God, I'm literally <laughs> I should decorate my, my stoop in the same way. I do. <laughs> no man, yeah. but I could still do it.
2: <laughs> Why not? Why not? You deserve no. Kirby. <laughs> Thank the name you. of the game of 2020 was, how do we make the best of what we got? Absolutely. And that was fully the mantra that, that got us through wedding replanning and uh, you know finding yeah. this new way of, of honoring our union. And I have to say, honestly, it was, um, it was a great filter that I, w- that I think was actually a gift for us because I think a lot of times when you're planning a wedding you can get caught up in the pomp and circumstance of the dress and the menu and the food and the plus ones and Mm -hmm. all of that stuff that takes the focus away from what it's all really about. It's about honoring this relationship. And we got an opportunity to kind of reset and and think about like, what are our intentions for our union? And how can Mm -hmm. we make this celebration a reflection of that and that yeah. alone you know oh my gosh and and so it really simplified everything and made it that much more meaningful and and pure and like the focus was singular it wasn't split among you know it, mm-hmm. it's, and so you know and it felt very very personal is 10 people were there And so I'm still like bugged out every time I remember like, oh, like other people know about this, like other people know, (laughs) you know, but yeah, no, in hindsight, there's no better way that we could have done that wedding, even though in the moment it felt like we were giving up something, you know, Mm -hmm. some big dream. And now... We're like,
0: we did that. Even just the movement in your photography. I'm like, I'm doing the diddy bop too as I watch (laughs) (laughs) watch you guys walking down the aisle and having a blast in the street. So thanks for letting us in. We loved it. We fangirled for a very, very, very long time. So we
1: appreciate it. Um, I did want to shift gears a little bit because I feel like we need to get, like, okay. your secret origin story. Yes. Like, I want to know how you went from being... Call it out, Amira. How did you go from being a mascot at Hometown Buffet uh. to working <laughs> in the magazine industry? Please let us know.
2: Oh, my God. You went deep into yes. the yes. cut. You went. That was a deep cut right there. Um. Well, that was a high school job. <laughs> and she said, first like off. It, I would like to think it prepared me greatly um, because I got to be a mascot that was in a costume. And all my friends from high school were servers at the restaurant. And I was a server as well sometimes, but I was always the one that was like volunteering to be the mascot girl. <laughs> and I had the time of my life. <laughs> I put that costume on. And I had dance moves that I still have not seen to this day. I'm
0: like, dang, that when I was in that costume, I could get it. I was
2: having the time of life. <laughs> oh my life. Elaine so, Lizzo
0: hat was started out as a mascot too. So now I'm like, I need to start over.
1: <laughs> that should have been my first job if I would have known. Had i know in I that, known.
2: Costume. <laughs> that costume, getting it together. There you go- that's right. I can th- talk to Lizzo about this now. Cause I didn't know yes. that we had this in common. <laughs> I have to talk to her because I'm like, is there something to that? Like we, did we tap into something? I was like, was that my original, like Sasha Fierce? You know, I did I was. develop an <laughs> alter ego where I could just like let loose and have more fun than everyone just being myself. And like, mm-hmm. you guys have to serve tables. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, no, that's so funny. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I had an existential identity crisis at the end of college and did not know what I wanted to be in the world. Didn't know what really even what the options were. And I came across this woman named Harriet Cole on, um, I was looking at a Ebony magazine in the middle of the Mm -hmm. night when I was like in the middle of like asking the universe, like, please shine a light on where I'm supposed to go, what I'm supposed to do after college. And when I happened to read this Ebony magazine one night and I read this story that really spoke to me, it was a cover story. Something almost audibly told me to Google the name in the byline, that the name of the woman who wrote that story. And I Googled her, I read about her career. And I'm telling you, she was a multi-hyphenate before there was even a term for it. Before yeah. that was a thing. This black woman was living her best life across all these different facets of media. And I just was like, you can do that. And Mm -hmm. she'd created this intersection for herself that allowed her to be her full authentic self before we even talked about full authentic selves. You know, Mm -hmm. she was, she could speak to fashion, spirituality, Black culture. And I just was so inspired by her, primarily because she did not take the bait that says you have to be one thing. Like she didn't feel like she had to check one box and yeah. be that thing forever.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I
2: loved the freedom with which she built this multifaceted career that allowed her to be more of herself than I felt most jobs allow you to be. And that is when I was like, this is what I want to be. This is what I want to do. And I just um, proceeded to stalk her. So really my, and it's, and it's kind of like a known, so now I'm like, I, I talk about it. I'm like, I don't recommend it, but this is what I did.
1: I stalked this woman. There's a <laughs> way in, there's a way in. It may not be legal, but there's a way in. But when
0: there's a way. And boss is about
1: to be in shambles after this
0: interview. Yes. <laughs> I love it. But I actually think you did that before you even recognized that you did that because before, um, and again, I feel like I've read your manifesto two or three times at this point, but you wow. mentioned you and your brother growing up in not seeing your identity, the biracial identity on the SATs. And you guys checked multiple boxes. Cause you're like, you know what, this is wrong. So I'm going to check both. And so I think you were actually crossing off a lot of things before you even recognized it.
2: So maybe, you know what? I, I do come from a family. My brother is a punk rocker. And I like to say like, we just had, we have the same kind of punk rock rebellion. We just it Mm -hmm. just looks a little different i'm like he's like you know green mohawk in a mosh pit and i'm more like cornrows in the corporate office you know (laughs) energy
1: same energy it's the same thing yep
2: yeah we find our ways of breaking out of our boxes for sure i i don't know where that comes from though i really don't um oh one thing i want to say is i had many random jobs i had that was one (laughs) of them i was i worked at the metro pcs kiosk at the mall I worked at Cunningham Research, which was like, I I was the girl at the mall who stood there with the surveys and would like, excuse me, can you take the survey? And I'd bring you into the back room and ask you a million questions. And like, that was a great (laughs) job for me of an aspiring journalist. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Allowed me to be so nosy and get into everyone's business. Um, But I think I want to just make a quick point about all the random jobs, all the odd jobs you have those experiences for a reason. And mm-hmm. you you really won't be able to connect the dots until way down the line when you finally are in the role that you're meant to be in. You look back and you go, you know what? I learned so much from each of those jobs that prepared me to be exactly where I am. So there, n- there's no mistakes. Even if you're on what feels like a detour, it's part of your journey and there's a purpose for it. Um, And there's something to learn, even if you're unemployed, even if you can't get work, there is a lesson for you in it. And maybe you're being rerouted to something else. And maybe there's more work for you to do internally um, or in your community that you wouldn't have been able to do if you were locked into a job. So there's always no matter how random your job (laughs) is or how depressing your experience is trust and believe that it will build to something far greater than you could even imagine at this point. So I just wanted to say that.
0: No, yeah, that's a that. mantra that I actually learned in college. And I to this day I live by it. It's like no matter the experience, you take the lesson and you leave the rest. No matter if it was a good experience, a bad experience, there is something to be gained from each and every one of them. So we're walking in that. <laughs> so we know we we have so much that we want to discuss with you about imposter syndrome. Now, (laughs) unfortunately, it is something that we feel like infiltrates our communities a lot. And I think both Amira and I suffer from imposter syndrome, right? So much so that Personally, I was promoted about a year and a half ago and I did not broadcast it to my networks. It took me months to even to be able to change my signature because Mm. I feel like I was trying to protect myself to being honest from the ageism that I felt I was going to experience as well as trying to see, okay, Kirby, like, do you actually, are you actually deserving of this title knowing damn well, I was doing a good job at my job. I work really, really hard, right? So we want to ask, did you ever suffer from imposter syndrome when you were on the corporate side of things? And why do you think that Black women, particularly young Black women and women of color, are disproportionately affected by imposter syndrome in the workplace?
2: Mm. Wow, I think this is such a big topic. And as much as we hear about it now, I still think it's under-discussed. you know? And I think that we have to acknowledge the systematic reasons we are feeling this way. And I do think it's important we have these conversations out loud with each other because so much of this dialogue is internal. And we think it's just us. And we think it's just like this dirty little secret that we're struggling with on our own. But when we crack open and share our stories and our experiences with imposter syndrome, we realize, wait a minute, it's not just me. We're right. so many of us are feeling this way and hold on, then we can get to why do we feel this way? We're supposed to, it was set. There are systems that have been set up for us to feel unworthy. Yep. And, you know, we can't address that and resolve that if we don't identify it. Right. Right. Oh, so I feel like it's really important that we talk about it. And, you know, it's interesting because I feel like earlier in my career, I had moments of real just audacity. Like, like, I remember when I started at Ebony, and I just, like, the world was my oyster. And I was so confident and so ambitious. Not that I'm not now, but there was a certain Unbridled courage that I had, and um, I hadn't been beat down by the world yet. I guess uh, (laughs) I had the audacity to change my signature, my the title in my signature, to production assistant (laughs) before I was appointed that role. Well, this is a better classification for what I'm doing. This every is day. what I'm doing. Yeah. Exactly. I don't recommend that. But <laughs> I didn't think of it then as giving myself a fraudulent promotion, certainly. Yeah. But I mean, I learn a lot from my younger self. When I stop and reflect on the things that I had the courage to do earlier in my life, it's empowering because it reminds me that I'm still that girl. Mm, yeah, and there's a well to draw from, and it's yeah. in, it's within. It's not outside of me. It's within me, and there are reasons that that part, that bolder, more audacious, more confident version of me has been chipped away at. You know, and there there are reasons for that. So I think it's important that we have some grace for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I've had different versions of imposter syndrome, but when I became the editor in chief of Teen Vogue, well, the editor of Teen Vogue, I mean there were some systemic factors at play that made it doubly hard. You know, you already have the internalized messaging from the world that does tell women, um, particularly women of color, particularly black women, particularly yeah. young black women <laughs> that you, you veer so far from the archetype of what pow- acceptable power looks like. Yeah that there is really no room for you. And even if you are in this, if you occupy that space, you have no role models. You don't know, yeah. you haven't had someone to follow. And, and the way that we move is going to be different. We're different players in this game, right? Like a, a young black woman cannot carry her power in the same way as an old white man. It wouldn't work Absolutely out not. well for mm-hmm, person, right. But also that wouldn't be authentic, right? So we are having to learn in real time, in practice, what authentic power looks like and feels like and how it moves through these spaces that are predominantly white, in a lot of cases, male dominated yeah. and without a role model. So we are the generation that is changing the narrative around power and the archetypes around what power can look like. And by us stepping into it and talking openly about how big of a role- Imposter syndrome plays. We are giving permission to the next generation to be in full acknowledgement of themselves and bring more of themselves into whatever roles they occupy. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I think it's it's like this is part of it. Like, we we're part of a new generation of redefining leadership, redefining power, and so it's normal. If you're feeling imposter syndrome, it's normal. It means yeah. you are doing something that hasn't been done quite like you before. Right. And it's gonna make other people uncomfortable. And we all gotta get more comfortable being With uncomfortable. Being. Comfortable? Yeah, it's how you agitate. Yeah. You I have know. to agitate in order to make change. And you have to agitation shake it up. is uncomfortable.
1: You just sparked something in me when you mentioned like having the audacity, because imposter syndrome makes me mad because when I was trying to break into the industry, I was scamming my way in. Like I remember literally something clicked in undergrad where I was like, I can figure out people's email addresses. There's probably like, and once I realized if I can figure out like what your disney.com is, I can just go on LinkedIn and email everyone until someone emails me back. And just the audacity to do that until when I got in the room and I realized like no one was like me class race, totally different. Something just like shook me. And I was like literally nerves for two years. And it took maybe like the last year or two when I finally got to A&E where I caught my groove. I'm just mad because I'm like, why didn't you? You were scamming for three years to get here. That's scamming. Yes. Out.
2: So I feel like, is this part of it too? Because I normally no. I, I feel like I haven't talked to anybody who acknowledges that like there was a time when we walked into spaces and and
0: had no, there was a no- boldness. Boldness. Mm-hmm. The boldness, yes. Yeah. I think there's also like- I was rereading your manifesto because, okay, we're not calling it a memoir. We're calling it a manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> we are more than enough. Um, and kind of looking at one of the things I love are the quotes. I'm really big on putting quotes on my mirror. And mm-hmm. very early on, a piece of advice that you had gotten from your mom is when the world tells you to shrink, expand. And I literally wish that I had that piece of information or that quote to live by early on, because that boldness is what we're trying to get back to. But like you're saying, now that we're having a conversation, we're calling it out. Guess what? That imposter syndrome hopefully will be non-existent. We are no right. longer shrinking. We are expanding. I'm um, so glad you called that quote out.
2: It's my favorite, that's my favorite message in the book. That is what I want you to walk away with is that message when the world asks you to shrink, expand. Yeah. Because I love that's that. the anecdote that's the anecdote to Imposter syndrome. Like Mm -hmm. we, we all need to find our practice that allows us to push back against those forces, whether they're external or internal that keep us small. And for me, that mantra is, it. it's like, it reminds me to take a breath. It allows me to acknowledge what is happening and choose to be myself anyway, to say what I have to say anyway, to proceed anyway, you know? So thank, I'm so glad that resonated with you.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) I wonder now that you are the
1: co-host of CBS's yeah. The Talk on Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. ET, 1 p.m. PT. There you go, Amira. <laughs> I got my TV listings ready for you, girl. There Thank you
0: go, you. Amira. Thank you for that plug. <laughs> Wondering, did you experience imposter syndrome as well now that you went from being behind the camera to in front of the camera? Mm, this is
2: a good, like, therapy question. I'm like, what do you think about this one?
0: Um, I don't
2: know if I identify with imposter syndrome per se in this, Part of my journey. But a lot of the things that I learned, you know, in all the previous chapters of my career, I think have all kind of coalesced in this moment, like I'm and Mm -hmm. I'm also revisiting some of those older lessons about how to find your voice and use your voice and remember who you represent when you have a seat at the table. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sort of revisiting a lot of these older lessons that I've learned throughout my career. But yeah. i I think I. I think I can say. Watch tomorrow. i have an uh, somehow tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow, the imposter syndrome is <laughs> going to creep back in. Thanks to this no.
1: <laughs> no.
2: But I, I. can say. I think. I think. I. I think. I have. Um. Hopefully, grown out of the same type of imposter syndrome that I used to experience, and I have to honestly give a lot of credit to the women mm-hmm. on set that create an environment in which I feel comfortable being myself and showing up fully every day. I think that if the environment were different, yeah. I might still yeah. be struggling with some measure of imposter syndrome. So I think it's important to shout out that this stuff doesn't just go away on its own. It takes work and it also takes, a, you know, it takes, I think this is a result. My comfort level is the result of a lot of work on my part and a lot of years of experience, but also the work of women leaders yes. who have- Cultivated an environment where folks feel psychologically safe, mm. yeah. you know, and I and I want to shout out our female showrunners um, yes. who are two incredibly smart women and all of my co-hosts as well, who have cultivated this culture of safety in self-expression. And so I'm stepping into that. You know, this isn't a new show, this is a show that was built on sisterhood and I'm stepping into that. So I feel really grateful and I have a lot of women to give credit to for that feeling of confidence and safety that I have in this job.
1: Oh my gosh, that's great. I was reflecting before this interview and I personally, I started my career at BET. So it was surrounded by black people, but specifically my team was like young black women and they're like killing it. So it's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that team. There came a time where I specifically wanted to do development. So I know I needed to shift and I came to A&E. My team is great, but it is completely different. Whereas I'm the only black woman on my team. And Mm -hmm. it took me a minute to like adjust to that. And I'm just wondering, from for you, you've been in white spaces and black spaces, behind the scenes and front of the scenes. How did your experience differ from a mostly white team, from like a supportive like black woman team, or if you had more people of color on your team?
2: It's yeah, what a really smart question. Um, it makes a huge difference in your in your day to day. I also, as you know, I started my career in Black media at Mm -hmm. Ebony Magazine. So I was surrounded by Black folks, people who look like me. And there is a certain level of built-in psychological safety. Yeah, Yeah. There just is. There are things that go without saying that you just, you know, that you're, you're coming from the same place in certain ways. And I um, not to say that Black folks are a monolith. We're definitely not. And trust me, mm-hmm. I didn't fit in. I wasn't like a shoe-in for that culture either. You know, <laughs> yes, I was yeah. probably the youngest person on the team. I came from California. Mm-hmm. These were Midwest folks mostly. I mean, I was interested in fashion. They had no fashion department. Like I stuck out like a sore thumb for a, that entire tenure. But, <laughs> but the cultural thing, I didn't have to experience being the only Black woman in the room at work until I went to and asked, and that's a very different kind of dynamic. And I did feel this shrinking happen. Um, I did. I, I and um, it is I, I think for for anybody who's never been the only one who looks like them in a room, I think it would be a really important educational experience to put themselves in a position where they have to be the only one because it will give them real empathy and insight into the experience of people of color in this country. Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of it, it, people might not understand, like, but why? But no one said, no one exactly. called you the N-word. Like, no yeah. one, you know, there's a lot of subtlety. There's a lot of microaggressions. There's a lot of a feeling like you're percent. on an island of your own. And I don't need to explain this to you all. Mm-hmm. You all know this experience. there, And that's part of why there's an instant built-in sisterhood and bond between us. And we've never met. But we know we've had similar experiences that bond us. So when you are in an all-white environment, or if you're a woman in an all-male-dominated environment, there is this feeling of isolation and aloneness. And that can manifest in a lot of different ways. And a lot of times it erodes your confidence. And it did for me at different stages in my career. But I think, you know, I felt a responsibility at at some point when I moved on to Teen Vogue and when I found myself in a leadership position I felt a responsibility as a Black woman leader to change that Mm -hmm. and to be deliberate about opening doors, creating space, and cultivating psychological safety for people who do not meet the status quo of what of what fashion media has looked like historically. And so that is what I made, I made it my mission, as well as the people, you know, the other leaders on the team. It was our mission to make sure that our office reflected our readership mm-hmm. and was extremely diverse in all ways because I genuinely believe that a diverse set of experiences and perspectives create the best work. It's as simple as that. And I always say you cannot change the story until you change the storytellers.
0: Absolutely, 100%. Um,
2: You know what I mean? It has to be a deliberate and intentional effort. And I think a lot of times companies tend to Skip steps in trying to be seen as a diverse and inclusive, you know, company that gets it. That's woke. Yeah. Um, but the work really, it, it, there's a lot of work internally within organizations that has to happen, and it has to be deliberate in order to change the complexion and mm-hmm. also the culture of a corporate environment, so such that everyone feels like there's a place for them and, and that their voices are valued. And hopefully now more than just us are thinking about this and grappling with this and trying to change this.
0: Absolutely. Exactly. It is such a breath of fresh air to talk to you um, because I just <laughs> feel like too. you you get it. And we're following in your footsteps as we try to even create our own paths. And particularly in these kind of white institutions, what it looks like, it's exactly what you said. You cannot change the stories without changing the storytellers. And I know that we're on our end trying to ensure that the executive producers on yep. set are reflective of the stories that we're Telling the showrunners are reflective, the props, the music, the food, the casting. It's like you cannot fix the outside if you don't work to fix the inside first. So another thing that we really want to work towards is debunking the stigma of what the boardroom actually looks like. (laughs) Um, I know I have a couple of friends who are in positions where they are in these boardrooms, right? And I feel like every time I talk to them, they're like, this This is what I was afraid of. This is the room that I've been trying to get in for so long. And you're like listening to these people like my ideas are just as good, if not better. (laughs) than what they've been trying to navigate this entire time. It's that
1: Michelle Obama quote when she was like, they're not smarter than you just because they're in that room. Once she said that, I was like, you're right. (laughs) All of that. So I'm like, what guidance or what advice do
0: you wish you had known before you were even in those rooms to kind of help people that might look at this boardroom and think that it's this intimidating thing when in actuality, your voice is the most important thing that you can contribute to being in that room? I mean, you've said it all. You dropped the gems on me. (laughs) I was just reading your book again. So sorry, I'm
2: probably (laughs) quoting you, to be honest. (laughs) No, that's, I think you guys have both said it. That's, that's it. It's, but I think everyone needs to go on their own individual journey to discover the value of their voice and their perspective. It's like, I, I absolutely remember being so intimidated the first time I had to do like one of our, our Monday meetings where we had to, you know, run down what's happening at the magazine in front of Anna and my whole Mm. team. Yeah. My voice was shaking and I, you, you only can build up confidence through these experiences, you know, and by, you know, even I have to say, even in this job at the talk, like the very third, like the first week on the job, the insurrection happened. Mm-hmm. And we are shooting on Zoom from home a live television show that I am brand new to. And you know, historically, the show doesn't necessarily delve deep into politics consistently. Yep. And yet here we find ourselves in this moment where we absolutely will be talking about this, and I know who I represent. Mm-hmm. And And it felt there was a lot of pressure. and I really, I, I my voice shook. But by saying it anyway, by getting in there when I was afraid and not and, and unsure and while my voice was still shaking, but still saying what I had to say anyway, and remembering who I'm doing this for, it's so much bigger than me. Um, it's like building a muscle. It's like the next time I had to say something that I knew was going to require some courage, I felt more ready for that because of what I had just experienced, what I had just overcome. So I think it's important that people aren't like, we need to normalize that feeling of resistance Mm -hmm, inside because it's the only way to build courage, to build that muscle. You know what I mean? So I feel way more comfortable even today. I'm only, I'm only what, not even two months into this new job but I do feel myself. Um, I feel more self-possessed. I yeah. feel myself, uh, you know, being able to go against the grain in moments when I have to, when I feel like it's important to do so, but we only know what we know when, we're, when we need to know it. Do you know what I mean? So, so yep. yeah. So like, I don't think interns should be, I mean, I certainly thought when I was an intern, I was like, I could be doing this better than everybody, you know, yes. <laughs> just put me in the room, put me in the game coach, but then like you get humble. And then maybe you lose a little bit too much of of that confidence. And then you have to fight for it back. And that's kind of what my whole book was about. It's about this journey that we're all on this universal kind of hero's journey that we're on. And you know, there's this stat that says young women's confidence peaks at age nine. Yes. What?
0: Yes. (laughs) That's terrifying. It is crazy.
2: Terrifying. And yet when you stop and think about your personal history and your story, you're kind of like, oh, dang, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. I remember that bold little girl I was, and I was not that girl at 26. I don't know what happened to that girl. So it's like, we all are on this arc where we were born into this world with limitless sense of possibility and unbridled confidence and over time, the world chips away at that. And if we are lucky, we identify at some point, wait a minute, hold on, I am worth fighting for, I am, I I need to go back and reclaim some of those parts of myself that I've left behind. Because if I don't, I'm doing a disservice to the world. So as you guys were pointing out, sometimes you get in these spaces, you're like, wait a minute, I was so afraid to be here. I felt like I didn't even belong here. And now I'm recognizing, wait a minute, I'm an asset to this. To this. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm making this better. And so I just hope that there's more and more examples of Black women, of trans women, mm-hmm. of, you know, folks who just we haven't gotten to see in power. I yeah. hope that we get to see them more, see more examples of what power can look like so that we feel less fraudulent when we have our oh my shot. gosh yes. right
0: auntie maxine said we are reclaiming our time so that is <laughs> exactly right. what we're going to do That's our right. time and our power too <laughs> so you've mentioned in past interviews particularly when you were at teen vogue one of the best piece of advice that you had received is to bite off more than you can chew and chew as fast as you can now i do want to push back a little bit because elaine i Am tired, I'm I'm tired, exhausted. <laughs> exhausted. I am just, I'm done. <laughs>
1: just. I am tired.
0: We, we're we exhausted. I'd like to we're tired. Re- retract that statement. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh my thank gosh. <laughs> because, because we're like, Black women already are trying to work 10 times harder just to get into the same rooms. We're already working overtime, particularly during this panoramic that we are experiencing Hi, right Pandarosa. now. We're exhausted. <laughs> I'm so tired. Now that you've retracted that statement, I'm actually glad that you did that because I feel yes. a little, I can breathe a little bit more. I'm like, if Lane says go, we got to go. Nah, okay. <laughs> um, so how do you no. kind of find that balance between wanting to jump in and say yes to these new opportunities, but also realizing the power in saying no?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm, that's the million dollar question right there, sis. Um, <laughs> I I am still on that journey. I am. And I just want to say I have, I publicly Take that back! I I, I have written for the New York Times once, and they asked me what do I want to talk about. And the title of the piece that is right here it says "Puzzle Culture is Overrated." That is on my wall for a reason. I have this in this piece. Yes. And in this piece, I basically apologized. I didn't know better back then, but Lord, I know better now. And even in my book, I said, like, if I could go back and give my younger self advice, I would say bite off only what you can chew, chew thoroughly, mm-hmm. <laughs> digest slowly,
0: yes. you know what
2: I mean? And make time to laugh.
0: Absolutely. And
2: girl, go to the bathroom when you got to pee. Drink water. Drink water, <laughs> like take care of your body, because these are the simple things that honestly, I learned the hard way. I did not practice those basic self-care principles for more than a decade. And I think I am trying to unlearn those things now. Part of the reason I even moved to LA was more life and more sunlight, more Mm -hmm, space. mm -hmm. It was for, it was life that called me to LA. And then when I got here, Mm -hmm. then I got this amazing job opportunity that I was like, Lord, I thought you brought me out here for more (laughs)
1: more
2: work-life balance. Here I am adding another job to my plate of jobs. I'm like, what is this? But I saw the purpose in it. And I really do evaluate opportunities differently today than I did previously. And I think some of that, again, it comes in time. I had to go through those experiences and even get to a place in my career where I can say no, because please believe that's a privilege. And I think it's important that we all recognize when we've arrived at a place in our career where we can not only afford to say no, but yeah. we're better for saying no. Yes. You know, and, and I feel like saying no creates more space for bigger, more enthusiastic, hell yeses. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, That give more to you and that you can give even more to. So I really try to practice that now. And I and I have kind of a filter in my mind around what helps me arrive at a hell yes. I I take it really seriously, you know, and I, I've been practicing this. It's a practice and mm-hmm. that's not perfect. So I like to remind myself and share with my friends struggling mm-hmm. with trying to make decisions is I think our goal should be trying to operate from our zone of genius. And there if you can identify what your zone of genius is, what is the thing that no one can do quite like you, and the thing that gives you that is regenerative, like the thing that gives you life as you pour into it, whatever that is for you, how you can spend more of your days doing that thing, because I really think those are the things that allow us to have greater impact. And I think there's a difference between being busy and being impactful. And I would rather be impactful, but, but it's something, again, I struggle with it. I I think leaving team Vogue gave me this opportunity to reset because I was switching gears big time from working for someone else to Mm -hmm. becoming an entity and working for myself. And so I thought to myself, I will be damned if I left a job (laughs) to create a job that I don't want to do. Okay. Okay. Yes. (laughs) So, what
1: a waste of my time! I know. What a waste of a leap of faith. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I so first when you mentioned like not taking pee breaks and eating, I feel personally attacked because right before <laughs> right before this interview, <laughs> like literally, I am actually so happy you to five because I was like, I haven't eaten all day, I haven't drink water, I didn't pee. When you said five, I was like, ran to the bathroom. <laughs> But you're right. Like I need to take it. I know it's so bad. She was consuming uh, a Cheez-Its before this interview. I was
0: (laughs) like
2: I still do it. Don't, don't shame yourself. Just acknowledge when it's happening and be like, I can, I'm going to do better for me
1: tomorrow. Or when I get off
2: this, I'm going to take better care of myself. I'm still trying to do it, you guys. And one thing I think we have to do in this pandemic is create boundaries between work and personal and like, and even just like, we have to erect boundaries around our weekend, like remind ourselves Saturday and Sunday are a thing and they're not yes, Monday. Tuesday. I know. Everything <laughs> blends together unless you're like, this is the weekend. And I operate differently on the weekend. I do things for myself on the weekend. I put my phone down on the weekend. Like I had to do it this past weekend and, and it, it has done wonders for my whole spirit and energy and how I showed up at work today.
1: We need to disconnect. We in are order. living parallel lives. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Honestly, the pandemic, horrible. Yes. But while we were still in the office, I worked a weekend show. So I was just to work six days a week. And now I'm like, oh, Saturday, I can go for a walk. Oh, this is nice. I'm mad that I miss all the time in New York doing that, but it's a better balance. Yes. <laughs> I have found a better balance out here
2: in LA, I have to say. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, just,
1: I'm hoping for it. Um, I do kind of want to, before I get to the next question, I kind of wanted to tell you like how this podcast came about. Yeah. I think that's the core of the next question. Yeah. Um, Kirby and I, we work on the same floor, but totally different departments and totally different networks. And we were both in the office at like 8.30 PM, which we shouldn't have been doing, but we were like, if we're going to work late, <laughs> if we're going to work late, we might as well pop a bottle of wine. And we just started like dishing and start talking about like what we wanted to do next, what like, what would our legacy be, but like what other black women have done and like what it meant to us and like how we can get other black women in and have them have like an easier process into this work environment. So the thread for that was like about mentorships. So I kind of want to talk to you about mentorship
2: mm. because
1: it's so important in this industry in particular, mm-hmm. um, maybe like not seeing yourself, but like seeing what someone else has done has helped me tremendously like move on. Mm. So mm-hmm. what role has mentorship played in your career specifically? It's played a huge role. Mm-hmm.
2: Mentorship has played a huge role. I I wouldn't be in this industry if it wasn't for Harriet Cole.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: existing publicly and also her picking up the phone and accepting my you were stalking her assistant, girl. <laughs> yeah, I was talking. I was talking really hard. My her accepting my desperate phone call and request for an informational interview it changed my life for real, full stop. And so I cannot operate within this industry without paying that forward, um, paying that back. I mean, I feel that responsibility and. You know, every intern that I have, I try to pour into them in the ways that Harriet poured into me. And um, I feel it's my responsibility. I don't know. I don't know what more to say than that. I just, I, yeah, I think like part of the job is, is making sure that things are easier and less daunting for those who are coming up behind you or beside you. But I also think that, you know, anytime we talk about mentorship, I feel that there's a need to kind of redefine mentorship yes. and, or expand the conversation around mentorship to include peers and to mm-hmm. include, um, cause you guys are, you guys have been mentors for each other. Right. Peer That's mentorship true. is real. And especially in this new era where I feel like we are a part of the new world order. I like to say, like you're not always gonna be able to talk to someone older or who's further along in their career and get the tools that you need to make the impact only you can make because systems are breaking down, things are changing, and, and it's up to this generation to rebuild, to build something new, to build something better
1: to do things
2: that have never been done before. And the people who are going to be your best advocates and allies and mentors are people who are side-by-side with you, trying to shake the table and do things differently in their respective lanes.
0: I'm so happy that you said that because I feel like I've personally, throughout my career, struggled with finding a mentor. My mentors have really been my peers, my family members, my relatives. I feel like I've had sponsors. I've had people who have mentioned my name in rooms when I'm not there, but someone that I could actually go to, to navigate the ins and outs of the industry, things that have been wrong, or things that I'm, when I'm thinking of changing jobs or changing a career path or anything like that. So I actually really appreciate you saying that because from my experience, mentorship hasn't worked because I felt like it was so one-sided. It was more yeah. effort than advantage. I was not, I was the one reaching out all the time. I was the one having to put the meeting on the calendar there would be months have gone by, a year has gone by and no one has checked in on me. Um, So I think redefining what mentorship looks like is really smart. And this idea of networking across is just as critical as networking up and down Mm -hmm. um, is something that I'm trying to learn how to navigate now, because quite frankly, I don't know if I've, Truly, truly had a mentor in this industry. And I feel like sometimes I'm like, dang, I'm just figuring it out like my friends. <laughs> like, That's I'm right. just, we're trying to figure it out together. So, yeah. but
2: one thing you all have that we also shouldn't underestimate is this visibility into all these different kinds of women's success stories and their leadership yep. styles just by watching how they move online. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we can't underestimate the power of representation on social media. And you may never some of your. I, I kind of have coined this phrase in my head. It's not a real thing, but it, in my head it is <laughs> digital mentors. People yes, people you may never meet in your life, but you follow them. You follow their journeys, and you're learning from them. You're learning how they make their moves. You're learning on how they articulate, you know, their ideas and how the decisions that they make and why they make to the extent that they they share that stuff. But I think that's incredibly valuable. And I did not have that pre social media we didn't have that yeah um, which is why finding Harriet Cole felt like like Cold. she was yeah this was like she was a unicorn but I feel Absolutely. like Bozema St. John. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. If I did not know that woman which I, I am I have the absolute privilege of saying that she's my friend. but if I did not know her, she would still have an indelible impact and imprint on me because of how I get to see her show up in the world online. You know, this is a black woman, six foot, dark skin, African black woman who chooses to show up in her full audacity with her Mm -hmm. long nails and her hair down to her, her, you know, waist and her high heels. And she breaks all the quote unquote rules about around what corporate leaders look like.
0: Yep. Yeah.
2: She is a, an extremely successful executive and she's a CMO right now of Netflix. And I will tell you when I got my job at Teen Vogue as editor in chief, that was the first meeting I took was going to see Bozema and I got wow. such a, a shot of, I just felt inspired and I, I felt like I got permission to be more myself, not to be like Boz, but to be more of myself. And I do think that we are getting That just by exposure, just by seeing different types of women in these leadership roles, sharing different parts of their lives and their stories online.
0: Yeah, Do you guys feel that way. I you- totally feel <laughs> that way. And Bazoma is totally someone that I feel like we've looked up to. Yeah. You are someone that we've looked up to. I was going to say, Ava that. Duvernay is someone that we look up to. So yeah. I think when you're talking about a digital footprint and the way that you guys use social media to share the ins and outs of the things that you're going through, absolutely. I love that because you guys are our mentors inadvertently, our digital mentors. Absolutely. Can we make that, that a thing, you that guys? That is totally, totally a thing. Birth that here on this podcast. Here that it is. is here. <laughs> Elaine, as long as you say Boom. yes. <laughs> um,
1: Hell yes. Digital mentors are a thing starting yes.
0: today.
1: Yeah. Um, we have a few more questions and one more thing on mentorship because when I was starting out, I specifically only reached out to Black women for mentorship mm. and I had an informational and she said something that I would never forget. And I don't, I still don't know how I feel about it exactly. She said, it's great that you have Black female mentors and they will teach you like how they have like weaved through things and it'll be like an up and down story. You need a white man mentor so that he can take another look. His story was straight up and kind of check you to see if people are playing you or not. And I didn't know how to feel about that. It was like, I don't know if I'm going to connect to this person. I actually have a white man mentor who's been great. He's awesome. And he kind of checks me and it's a different point of view. Like we don't have the same experiences. I can't handle things the same way he has. But for me, it's kind of been like looking outside the window, like see how other people see me. So when looking for mentors, did you specifically look for people that felt like you or did you want someone like on the other side of the road? It's a really
2: good question. I think that the mentors I've sought out have been women I relate to, mm-hmm. who, Black women, but that's a short list. And I would say that I would count any female boss I've ever had as a mentor of sorts. That being said, I have also reaped the benefits of finding allyship in folks yep. who don't look like me and consulting them when, I'm in, when I find myself at a critical impasse in my career and getting a complete, uh, like an outside perspective or a completely different perspective that is in a lot of ways informed by their privilege. Mm-hmm. And I will say one really difficult negotiation that I went into, I was better equipped after having spoken to a white man who allowed me unknowingly allowed me to borrow his privilege yep. for a moment, try it on for size. I got to think like a white man for a night, mm-hmm. and that was an enlightening experience for me. And I I can tell you, if I had consulted any of the black women in my you know in my sphere at that time, I might not have been given permission to go ask for what I feel I deserve. I don't I think I would have gotten different advice. And I did get different advice. I was told you have no leverage. Yep. I was told take it for a year and make the best of it. I was told do you really think that you're worth more than that? Well, what do you think? When I talked to this white man, every time I said, but what if they say this? And what if they say that? And what if this happens? He says, do it anyway. Yeah. And that was instrumental in me finding the confidence within myself to walk in and advocate for myself like a white man. So I do think these different points of views can be really helpful in expanding our worldview and helping us kind of grow into who we're meant to be. So it's, it's always important. I don't think I've sought out white male mentors, but I think that inadvertently, I have felt mentored by people who did not look like me. And that's always a a welcome surprise.
0: Amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, we have one final question for you. Um, The the late, the great, the magnificent, the majestic Cecily Tyson used to always get asked the question about being a legend. And she Mm -hmm. hated the term because it felt like my job is done. I'm no longer doing the thing that I love so much, right? And what I want to ask to end this conversation is... What does the term "legend" mean to you? People are calling you a legend, and you're so young. You still have me? so much to. Yes. Yes. People calling me that? Oh, yes. yes. I don't know. And if no people. one else is, <laughs> know right here that we look at you mm. as a legend. Um. You. You've done so much. So, what does that mean to you? And when you think of the legacy that you want to leave behind. And we know you're young. We're not saying you're stopping anytime you're soon. you call calling me an auntie?
1: You call me auntie? No! <laughs> I'm trying to be an auntie. I, OK, I am You done. can be my
0: auntie if you'd like to. I, I will take it. I want
1: to be an auntie. No. Fly auntie.
0: But what does, what does that mean for you? And what do wow. you hope your legacy to be?
2: Wow, 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 wow. Well, first of all, I have to say, <laughs> on behalf of my fellow ladies at the talk, they don't understand this whole auntie thing associated with me. They're like, excuse me, <laughs> you are the youngest person on this panel. Who the hell's auntie are you? Okay. Let's just be clear. And if you're an auntie, what does that make me? I don't like that. So it's
0: so it, it funny. Like, the fifth on that one.
2: Right? I'm like, well, listen, If you have been an editor in chief of a teen magazine, then that's how you become an auntie to a to Gen Z. To, to the Gen baby. Z, yep. the so TikTokers. Clarify, exactly. <laughs> um, oh man. I mean, I've never heard that term associated with me. And I don't know that I identify at all with that term because I mean, I'm like in my mind, I'm still so so I have so much to learn and I have so much to do. And I think all that I I've just felt a responsibility to share the challenges that I've had and the lessons that I've learned along the way in real time versus, Mm -hmm. you know, versus I think like older generations have felt like their story isn't valid, their lessons aren't worth sharing, who are they to share their journey or their lessons until they're Cicely Tyson's age. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I feel like we do a disservice to each other as peers, as women who are part of the same generation, if we don't open up and share a little bit more about our universal stories, our stories are Absolutely. universal, our challenges are universal, our triumphs are universal. And I feel like that, I guess, maybe will be one day, part of the legacy that I, I leave behind is that I won't have to be Russian to tell all, you know, document all my <laughs> stories telling, you know, I, I'm trying to do that in real time. I'm trying to share in real time. I'm trying to invite other women to share their truth in real time.
0: Yeah, I want to
2: cultivate those conversations that we aren't having enough with other women that will hopefully help connect us more deeply, help us understand each other and ourselves more deeply, and to remember that we are navigating this world together, not alone, and that the things that we're we're navigating through are challenges that other women are also facing, you know, and and we're stronger together. Yeah. Like that's the sentiment that I think I I, I move through the world with, and I hope that. Like when I'm old and gray and when I'm, you know, <laughs> you know, when I'm the age that Cicely Tyson was when her book came out, which by the way is yeah, it's beautiful, a gift, it's a gift to yeah. all of us. And it is so dense with gems. I just hope that I can feel like I said, and I shared, and I did what I came here to do Amen. That is, yeah. to make it easier and better to make it easier, less daunting, less isolating, or the next woman, black woman, who is coming up behind me. You know what I mean. And if I've done, and if I've done that, then I then I can rest easy. And I hope that Cicely Tyson, who absolutely is and deserves the title legend with the capital L, I I hope she is somewhere resting easy in paradise at the at the top of the, the mountaintop that she has reached with such dignity and such grace because she has earned
0: it. She's the legend. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Guys, I feel
1: like we need a a virtual hug. I know.
0: (laughs) So we came up with this game. It's called Truth or Cheers. We'll ask you a series of questions. I don't know if we'll stump you this time, but if you can answer as truthfully and as quickly as possible, whatever comes to mind. And Mm. if it's too much tea for you, if you feel like, you know what, girls... I'm just not going to answer this right now. You can totally cheers to it and pass it along. But I okay, think we have okay. some good ones yes. for you.
2: <laughs> All right. yay! I'm excited. Let's do it. All right.
0: So we already told you how much we were obsessed with your wedding. Rank these famous Black wedding songs from best to worst. Jagged Edge, Let's Get Married, Ooh. Daniel Caesar's Best Part, oh. or Luther Vandross's Here and Now.
2: Oh, Okay, I'm gonna show my millennial cards right now and I'm gonna say Daniel Caesar is one because that is so my wedding song. Then I gotta give it to wait, what was the first one you said? Jagged edge, let's get married. Not the remix. I gotta give it to Luther next. I gotta just on GP. (laughs) I have got to give it to the legend that is Luther Vandross next. And then I'm gonna do Jagged Edge because. I mean, that's
0: that's like the song for the after party. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's my ranking too. (laughs) Yes. Okay, good. (laughs) Okay. Oh, I hope you give us this one. What is the wildest thing you've ever heard Anna Wintour say?
2: Oh, man. Um, I (laughs) (laughs) I think it's this one time when um, shout out to Vera Papasova, who was our revolutionary digital wellness editor, who pitched a story about female masturbation, the history of it, how political it's been throughout Mm -hmm. the ages, how important it is as a life skill. And Mm -hmm. I was like, you want me to go walk into Anna (laughs) Wintour's office and say the word, female masturbation. I'm with you. I'm like, I'm with you. Like you have my blessing, but like, how am I supposed to communicate this to Anna? Like, yeah, girl, I was, I was, I was sweating <laughs> in that room. And I, so I, I delivered it. I delivered the pitch with a straight face and I was like holding my breath and she just kind of took a moment and she goes, well, I don't see why not. Men do it all the time.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love it.
2: And in that moment, I thought, Anna is more radical than the people know, than the kids know. That was cool.
0: That was That's cool. awesome. Yeah, she got cool points for that. She got cool points in my head for that. hmm <laughs> And the last question for you, we always ask our guests an iteration of this question. And yours is, because you're such a boss, being Black is my favorite <laughs> power suit because? I mean, the thing that just keeps going, going this is not profound, is because
2: we're fly. Like, I don't know. I mean, I think, is there a more profound answer to that?
0: What
1: have other people said no? I totally agree. That's all you need. That's all you need. You really don't need to expand. It's just because it is. It is what it is. It, It is what it is. It's because it is what it is. This is so
2: refreshing. This is so amazing that you guys have this platform to just key, key, be yourself, ask, but then also ask these really great critical questions. You're so well-researched. You have such great personalities. You two have great chemistry. Like, this is great. (laughs) Thank you
1: so (laughs) much, Elaine. (laughs) Do you understand? Like, this was like a light, especially like the podcast Uh, overall. But interviewing you, like, you were on all of our walls. So uh, this is like a full circle moment. And yeah. I'm like trying to make sure and like, like remind Kirby, like we gotta reflect, girl. Like we do. Is it. <laughs> but you also guys, reminding you too make-
0: that you are you are a legend. You are an icon in the making. You are literally doing everything that we want to do. When you are breaking down those walls, you are kicking down those doors, you are building those yeah. tables. So um I know it's easy to kind of move through life and not sit down and reflect, Amir. And I definitely struggle with that, but know yeah. that. We're reflecting for you. And I say this, I feel like yeah. a lot, but we're proud of you. We love you and Thank continue you. to do yeah. what you're doing because you're you are yeah. a boss. You're a boss. Yeah. I, this is about, you're about to make me cry. <laughs> um, but, well, virtual hugs. Thank yes, you oh, so <laughs> much.
1: <laughs> the Table is Ours is produced by us, Amira Lawali and Kirby Dixon. This episode was also produced by McKamey Lynn and edited by Arjun Sheth. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Ted Butler and Jesse Katz. The Table is Ours was created by a Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. See y'all next week.